May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I went to a concert on a Sunday night in the fall of 2015. My ears were still ringing on Monday morning. Tuesday, still ringing. Friday, still ringing. Do you know what tinnitus is? It's the perception of ringing in the ears, often caused by exposure to loud noises that you'd hear at a construction site or a gun range or a death metal concert, in my case. I went to an audiologist about a week after the concert, and he suggested a trial of a new drug at a local hospital. Over the next few months, I received a series of six shots from a, what felt like a four-inch needle in each eardrum. There was a topical anesthetic, but still, it hurt and was terrifying. And the worst thing is that as a trial, the serum might well, very well have been a placebo. I had no way of knowing. Why would I subject myself to such torture? Because I wanted to be healed. And that is the question raised in our gospel text that we're going to consider this morning. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? In the King James Version, wilt thou be made whole? There is a lot packed in to that question. Do you want to be well? I want to break it down into three related questions. First, what do you want? What do you want? Second, will it make you well? And then third, how do you get well? So first, what do you want? What do you want? There's a great book. It was written a few years ago called The Life You Save May Be Your Own. It's by a man named Paul Ely. And he looks at uh, 20th century Catholic novelists like Flannery O'Connor and uh, Doris Day, Thomas Merton not just novelists, writers, and Walker Percy. Walker Percy was a fiction writer. He wrote a very famous book called The Movie Goer. It's about a man who goes to a lot of movies. And in the book, the second book, The Life You Save May Be Your Own, the writer is asking Walker Percy why he's so obsessed with movies. And this is what Walker Percy says. For a lot of people, the movies provide important moments. It may be the only time of the day or any, any point in the week When someone, a cowboy or a detective or crook, is heard asking, what is life all about? In other words, the appeal of movies, at least according to Walker Percy, is that they give voice to the burning question at the center of our lives that we rarely consider. Namely, what do we want? What is life all about? What's worthwhile? What am I supposed to be doing? What's worth doing? What can I do that I will not regret as I expire? These are the kinds of questions that Jesus asked. And the story that we're looking at today in John 5, it takes place in Jerusalem. And there was a pool in Jerusalem that people believed had 
miraculous healing power. And Jesus, seeing the pool, sees a crowd of people with all manner of disabilities hoping to find healing. I imagine this scene is quite chaotic. It's like an ER at a center city hospital. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And Jesus focuses his attention on one man. We don't know why Jesus singled him out. We know very little about this man, save that he had been an invalid for 38 years. That's about how long people lived in that era. So this is a man for whom the struggle is real. Life had been cruel to him. Jesus knew that the man had been laying there a long time. I think Jesus knew that this man's paralysis had in some way defined him. Yet, Jesus has the gall to ask him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? I think there's two ways you can look at this. Either Jesus is so stating the obvious, it's insulting, or, which I guess is an option, or B, Jesus is, he's going like subterranean. He's going underground. He's inviting the man to consider what lies beneath your desire to be physically healed. I think Jesus is saying something like, what do you want? What do you really want? What do you think will make you well, give you peace, set your heart at rest? What do you think will really make your life full? I think that is a question Jesus Ask each and every one of us about our lives. What is it that you want? What is it that you're hoping for? What's the one thing that you think if you have it, then things will be all right? Now, a lot of you are very self-aware, intelligent, reflective, good-looking people. <laughs> so maybe you're already asking that question. But if you're not, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. The more you ask yourself, what do I want, the more you realize you have no idea what you actually want. You have no idea what one thing you should be doing that will make your life worthwhile. Why is that? It's, I mean, we live in a world, in a society, that is pretty good at satisfying our basic material needs. That's not true for everyone. Certainly not true for everybody in our city or the United States, let alone the world. But it's true for a lot of us. I mean, there has never been a society more devoted to satisfying material desires than ours. Never been better at it or more efficient at it. But that affluence, that broad prosperity that we enjoy, it does come at a cost. And one of those costs is that we, as a culture, have sidelined or are privatized those questions of ultimate concern. So we all have to work out for ourselves what really matters. What do we really want? What's going to set our heart at rest? There's a writer that I really like. 
named David Foster Wallace. He's a fictional writer. And he died in 2008. A couple years after he died, there was a book-length interview with him published. I think it's called, Although in the End You Just End Up Becoming Yourself. And in the article, David Foster Wallace, who was not a Christian but very perceptive about human nature, he said, he observed, he argued, he opined that fear is the basic human condition. And here's what he says. And the face that I put on the terror is the dawning realization that nothing is enough, that no pleasure is enough, no achievement is enough, that there is a kind of queer dissatisfaction or emptiness at the core of the self that is unassuageable by outside stuff. His guess is, quote, that's been going on ever since people were hitting each other over the heads with clubs. But our particular challenge is that there's never been more and better stuff coming from the outside that seems to temporarily fill or drown out the whole. What is it that you want beneath all the outside stuff? After the mortgage and the good car and the iPhone 11, what is it that you really want? What, where would it take you if you asked yourself that question and said yes to whatever came next? What do you want? Second question. Will what you want make you well? Will what you want make you well? One of the theses, you could say, of the Christian faith is that there is no true healing apart from God. That wholeness is a condition that God and God alone can bestow. You don't need God to be moral or compassionate or admirable or happy as much as any one person is happy. But, you know, kind of a buzzword, but shalom, that sense of wholeness or completeness, fullness, that only comes from God. Now, if that's true, then you would discover that in your greatest and perhaps especially your greatest moments of achievement or happiness, sweet as it may be initially, it will eventually turn to ash. And you'd be left wondering, is this all there is? Is this all that I want? And I think what the Bible would say is that it's not until you are reconciled to the God from whom you are estranged. It's not until your whole being comes alive in worshiping the God who formed and fashioned you that your heart will be at rest. Nothing else, no matter how meaningful are helpful, will make you human in that profound, beautiful way. And we see a little bit of the different layers of wholeness or wellness in our story from John 5. The man that Jesus healed was physically disabled, seemingly paralyzed, but that was not his only source of suffering. Do you notice in verse 7, Sir, he says to Jesus, I have no one to put me into the pool. He was physically disabled, but he was also alone, isolated, cut off 
And in that world, physical disability had significant religious consequences. This man would have never been allowed to enter the temple in Jerusalem. He would never have smelled the incense or seen the priests or heard the praises of God from the mouths of the people of God. He was physically disabled. He was isolated. He was also spiritually excluded. He was cut off. But, but, did you notice what was perhaps our, our Lord's area of greatest concern? What drew out his clearest words? It's, it's in the bottom of our reading, so you might have missed it. It's in verse 14. This is, this is significant. The man had been physically healed, and he was in the temple, so he was in, he was now included in that which he was once excluded from. He was allowed into, that, into the place. And Jesus says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This is a confusing passage. It's maybe disturbing. I don't, frankly, know all what Jesus means here. I do know, because of John 9, just four chapters later, Jesus says pretty definitively that physical disabilities or or suffering or illness is not simply the consequence of sin. But what he says here is, yes, you've been healed. You can walk. You have been included. But there is an affliction far more troubling, far more debilitating that you need to be on the watch for. And that is a sickness of the soul, the sickness unto death, what Jesus calls sin. All the ways that we avoid God, relax God's commands, all the ways that we act as if we're a better judge of what is good for us than God himself. The point I'm trying to make is this. Jesus cares about our bodies Jesus cares deeply about our places of alienation and hurt. But Jesus cares most deeply about our sin. And until we address that, we cannot be whole. We will not be healed. Now, you maybe are thinking, okay, I see where this is going. No amount of health or prosperity or even relationships will make us whole. Only Jesus can do that. And therefore, the conclusion must be to commit, get involved, partner with God, and follow God in all the ways he stipulated. I mean, that's not untrue, but if we stop there, we're actually missing the second half of what this passage has to teach us. Wholeness, healing, wellness comes from God and God alone. Yes. But this healing from God comes apart from the law in the language of St. Paul. This Jesus' encounter with this man happens apart from the tradition-sanctioned religious structures of his day. And that is a very surprising message. I would say 
It's actually a subversive message. Here's what I mean. There's kind of a contrast in this story between two people groups. On the one hand, you have the disabled man who literally cannot move. And then you have the Pharisees or the religious rulers who are freely moving about the temple. One of them is ostracized and excluded. He's powerless. The other group, the Pharisees, are at the center of religious power. They decide who's in and who's out. They run the show. One of this, this man, he's so spiritually dull that he doesn't even think to ask for Jesus' name. And then you have the Pharisees who are experts in God's law, who are extremely concerned about integrity and character and virtue, who strive with their whole being to be faithful. And what does Jesus do? Jesus tells this disabled man to get up, take up his mat, and walk. He commands him to disobey what people perceive to be God's law. He is orchestrating a conflict. And the religious leaders take the bait. And so one one conclusion to draw from this little conflict is that the sickness of the soul that Jesus refers to as sin, it can take a lot of forms. It can look like the inordinate love of power, our prestige, our pleasure. I think we're pretty familiar with that. But religion, too, can become a sickness of the soul. It can be an obstacle to being made well. Now, why am I telling you this? Is it because Church of the Cross is filled with Pharisees? No, of course not. (laughs) But how many times a day do you secretly think to yourself, if the world was filled with people who thought like me, it would be a better place? Or maybe not so secretly, if you're on Twitter. (laughs) There's a great, uh, kind of an old movie, I'm sure Peter likes this movie, (laughs) called The Big Chill. And Jeff Goldblum says this great line. He says like, something like this. It's like human beings can go for days without food or sex, but they can't go three hours without a rationalization. <laughs> and the idea being, you know, that secret thought, if the world was just filled with people like me, we'd be much better off. I don't know what you call that. Is self-righteousness kind of masking as conviction? Whatever. The point is, that attitude, it's not religious But it's the same dynamic that characterized the Pharisees. And it's maybe the most malignant form of soul sickness that we have to face. So Jesus has this pervasive, excuse me, subversive message. Yes, worldly pursuits or whatever. But so too, this kind of self-righteousness, that will not make us well. Okay, third and final question. How then do we get well? Uh, What I want to say is is simple and direct. Jesus said to the man, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And at once, the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. The only thing that's strong enough to root out The soul sickness of sin is personal encounter 
with our Lord himself. And that is kind of the narrow way of the whole Christian thing. The, the scandal of particularity, as some smart person said. Jesus was bold enough to, 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 to present himself as the answer to our deepest problems and deepest longings. And the church has always maintained that the meaning and direction of your life hinges upon not what you do with church, but what you do with Jesus. It's personal encounter with him. Now, you're probably not sure what I mean or how exactly that happens. And that's a fair point. Because I don't know if that, what I'm calling personal encounter with Jesus, I don't know if you can codify that or predict that or engineer that. You know, in our text, it's, it's Jesus who approaches this man. It's Jesus who speaks to him. It's God who always takes the first step. Now, of course, there are things we can do. We can read scripture or we can pray. Like, you can try to pray and it won't hurt you. You can eat bread or drink wine in communion <laughs> or elsewhere, I suppose. There are, there are thousands of spiritual practices that you can adopt, adapt, vary to build into your life regular encounter with God. But the emphasis of this passage, and what I want to stress, is that it's God who takes the first step. Get up, take up your mat, and walk. It's direct, it's simple, it is refreshingly uncomplicated. Such is the power of Jesus. Such is the authority of the word of God. The same word, which in Genesis 1 says, let there be light, and whole galaxies spun into place. Just one word. That is the power that is inherent in him. That is the power that originates in him. And that leads to the final and very, very brief thing I want to say. And it's about, it's about what makes the gospel so shocking. Because as far as I can tell, it cost Jesus nothing to heal this man. It was effortless. And as far as I can tell, God spoke into being redwood trees and rising suns and infinite stars without breaking a sweat. It was simple. It was uncomplicated. It was effortless. But to save us from our sin, to reconcile and rescue us from that which held us in bondage, what did that cost? That cost the, the agony of Gethsemane. Father, take this cup from me. That cost the, the darkness and the horror of the cross. It, it cost God nothing to create our world. To take it back from the power of death cost us, 
cost him his very life. Such is the power of sin, and such is the greater power and love and determination of God. And to the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, Jesus said, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And today, as long as it is called today, I think Jesus says to us, do you want to be well? Let me pray for us. Our Lord, we thank you that you take the first step, and that you are determined to have a rightful place in our lives. You are determined to set us free. You are determined to make us whole. And so we invite you, our Lord Jesus, in the presence of the Holy Spirit to be at work amongst us this morning. In our prayers, in our time of Holy Communion, in our worship, Dwell among us, Lord, draw near to us. And in, our own, the, and in the language of our hearts, say to us, get up, take up your mat, and walk. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.